This is the Author Archive podcast. Today, the guest is Martin Ware, who has a book out, an autobiography, a memoir, Electronically Yours. Ominously, then it says volume one. So, <laughs> Martin, Martin, you've got a whole lot more to write about. I started researching the book uh, during lockdown, and it became obvious after about a week that it was going to be impossible to fit it into one volume. I then I started looking at where the breakpoint would be, because this goes up to 1992. And it seemed obvious to me that um, when I met my current wife and when I had children, that's like the start of a new book to me. And uh, it's, it was all coincidental, the start of a new phase of my career where we started where there was a regeneration of Hem 17 and we started performing live and I got interested in soundscapes and art in general. And uh, so I thought volume two <clears throat> is literally the second act of my life, you know. Okay, so let's put you in context. You first came into public recognition uh, because of Human League, would that be fair? Yeah. And what year was that? Uh, that was 1978. And what was it that took you to that point? The thing that endears me, endears the book to me, is that it seems to be impelled and propelled by passion. Yes. So, so what was the passion that took you from being a lad in Sheffield to being on top of the pops? Uh, well, <laughs> firstly, we were all, uh, myself and my friends, were all... Um, heavily engaged in creativity of all kinds. I mean, where we all met was uh, mainly this place called Meat Whistle, which was a, um, a kind of youth drama, ostensibly a youth drama uh, uh, club. But in fact, it was more a place for, uh, more like a safe space for messing about uh, in all types of creativity. And of course, we all we wanted to be was, uh, you know, kind of ultimately, if we could have waved a magic wand, be in a pop group, you know, because that's how you got the girls. And um, it really is that simple with teenage hormones. Um, and, you know, a lot of my friends are very talented in different ways. <clears throat> some of them musically, some of them dramatically. My friend Ian Reddington, who went on to be on EastEnders and, and the Coronation Street and many other things, was uh, accepted for RADA at 17 from Meat Whistle and, uh, you know, went on to join the Royal Shakespeare Company at 18. And so it wasn't just music. We were interested in literature, science fiction in particular, films, obviously, uh, the arts in general, because it was a bit of a wasteland in Sheffield. Um, there wasn't that much to do. Uh, there was a uh, the Graves Art Gallery, which once you've seen the paintings once round, you weren't likely to go <laughs> for a while. Um, there was a huge central library, which is very important to me and saved my life probably. Uh, there was a great museum in Western Park. And that culturally, apart from the odd huge band that would come into Sheffield, play at the City Hall, was about it, frankly. Um, so you had to make your own fun. Yeah, I understand that. And I do um, resonate hugely with your love of the uh, the public library, because I was in Hull while you were in Sheffield. And I used to hang around the library a lot 
Now, I used to get my Ray Bradbury books from there, but I also I also got uh, LPs. Uh, yeah. Did you get sound as well? Well, the thing is, um, it was available, but I didn't need to because, fortunately, although I was, uh, my family were, uh, had no money, but as soon as I got a job, I started buying second-hand LPs from the best second-hand record store in Sheffield, which was literally five minutes' walk from my front door, called Rare and Racy. And so they were so cheap, the second-hand LPs, and they were so eclectic that you could afford to buy them uh, just on the basis of what the cover looked like. <laughs> yeah. You need to listen to them or, or the description. So, uh, because you could always take them back, get half the value back. And so this kind of virtuous circle, uh, it was open for 35 years. It's only just shut down now, which is a real tragedy, actually. Um, and that was my musical education. That together with Phil, Phil Oakey, who obviously went on to be uh, the lead singer of the Human League. He was my best mate at school. And he taught me a lot of stuff because he was more worldly, had a lot more money and could afford to buy albums and stuff. <laughs> now, what I don't understand, Martin, I was um, clamouring for music and fascinated by music. I went to um, a guitar. You didn't. You went to the electronics. And I sort of had a look at electronics and had a go at <laughs> make, making my own early synthesizer by adding sine waves together. Right. Um, and um, I've still got... Um, uh, that what's that instrument where you push your uh, your hand back and two theremin. the theremin I've still got a theremin here right um but I found I could do things more things for the guitar why is it that you decided to go down the electronic music route well <clears throat> first of all uh I'd always had a kind of intuitive love of anything futuristic and I think that's because we grew up in the the uh, you know this in the middle of the space race really, and uh, in in a time where there was only like one or two channels on the television, stuff like that seemed impossibly glamorous and uh, yes. uh, 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 and and seemed to offer hope for the future, um, which is sadly lacking now for today's young people. But um, so anything that was redolent of the future, I was attracted to naturally and so things like you know the use of theremin on beach boys good vibrations for instance yes. um and there were quite a few pop songs that had a kind of futuristic element to them I mean, things like telstar by um yeah the joe meek production joe meek production and i didn't know what they were or what the instruments were at the time i, I was just naturally automatically attracted to them. So when it came to, I'm going, right, amongst my friends, I'm not a trained musician. I, I still can't read or write music. Um, and I have no desire to to have, you know, lessons, even if I could afford them. But what I did want to be was Brian Eno uh, from Rock's Music. I thought, I can do the glamorous stuff. I can... <laughs> I, can look, I can look camp, and uh, I can um, I can I can wear a Lurex glove and twiddle a you know a uh, joystick and make funny sounds, and uh, that appealed to me greatly. Having said that, um, 
the first instrument I bought was actually an electric guitar. It was a Gibson SG copy. <clears throat> I think it was 35 quid. And the action, I know about these things there, but... The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the action, uh, to me, it was just an electric guitar. The action was very high. And so it was very hard to form chords on it. Yeah, hurts your fingers. It hurts you, and it hurt my fingers a lot. And I'm going, this isn't for me. You know, they're going, oh, just dip your fingers in surgical spirit for three months. I'm going, no, <laughs> fuck that. And, uh, and it kind of... <clears throat> Coincided with, all right, I'm going, what is out there that I can afford uh, when I first started working as a computer, as a, actually as a uh, training manager at the co-op, I started getting a wage and um, I thought I can afford on higher purchase <coughs> a twin style of stylophone, uh, like the Rolf Harris thing, but a kind of souped up version. And so you could play two notes at once. And that then I thought I was, you know, and I started, people went, oh, you can be in my pretend band at Meat Whistle. And, uh, you know, you can make some weird noises and stuff. So that was the first thing. And then a bit later on, I got better and better synthesizers that were kind of entry level cost. Uh, whereas before, you know, when I used to go and see, say, um, Emma Slake and Palmer. Yeah. You know, Keith Emerson would be on stage. And he'd have a mountain of synthesizers. And I couldn't understand, you know, it, it seemed absolutely an insurmountable test to go, I could never afford this. Because you forget that a lot of the people who are doing that experimental stuff in prog rock groups, they were loaded. Yeah. Right? They, <laughs> they, came, they came from rich families. Kraftwerk, wealthy family. Where are they going to get a Moog module from? Where are they going to get, how are they going to get special modules made for them by Robert Moog? You know, you, this doesn't come to working class kids. It goes to people and, and a lot of those kind of prog rock bands were middle class kids with rich parents, you know, Genesis, uh, yeah. King Crimson, you know, all the ones we admired. So it seemed like an insurmountable task. So when affordable sense came out that's when that's lit the blue touch paper i after reading your book i went back i met roxy music very early on because i was doing a prog rock show on the radio right. and they all piled in courtesy of island records and i was doing it in southampton and uh, brian eno had been to winchester art school so he came in and so I got all this stuff, and I was listening to Virginia Plain. Great. And, God, it's a fabulously good record. Of course. I mean, 50 years back, it's a great record. It still sounds kind of futuristic now. Yeah. Full of energy. And, and funnily enough, I've just been doing some, um, some events associated with the autobiography, and I've been asked all sorts of questions and uh, I've been asked to describe why I liked Roxy music so much. And for me, it was that te that tension of the retro futurism. I love that time travel thing. Uh, the fact they were presenting themselves as kind of glamorous in the traditional kind of film star sense, which clearly they were just rockers at that point, but they were also very good uh, songwriters, but they were also creative soundscape makers. 
And it was the perfect kind of confluence of those things that I uh, and several of my friends, you know, regarded as the future, you know, at that point. And of course, we're all, you know, our biggest influence, I suppose, was David Bowie. But he's more of a chameleon, right? So he was an inspiration from a kind of a, a, a variety point of view. Um, and it wasn't until Low and Heroes in the, in the kind of mid-70s that it really, again, that's another blue, blue touch paper that lit another ban- bunch of fireworks. Um, another thing that comes out of your book is if you listen to early electronics um it's it's fireworks it's oral fireworks for the ears but it doesn't grab you emotionally it seems and it seems this was your mission always been my mission i was stung and irritated very very early on by people glibly uh, uh, opining, that's the word, yes. that, that uh, electronic music firstly required no effort, you just pressed a button, which is bollocks. Secondly, <laughs> secondly that um, it uh, uh, can't be emotional in the same way that guitar music can be, in rock, to, or, rock or pop terms, because it doesn't, it doesn't um it doesn't contain the emotional capability of modulating stuff on the fly when you're playing live which is also bollocks uh now and now there are various kind of uh synths that allow you to control articulation i mean the, the synth that i play live called a rolling um uh since um what's it called gt I can't remember now. Anyway, but it's got all sorts of control things with proximity sensors and and uh, 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 you know modulators, and you can you can create a sense of performance that's not just based on which keys you hit um, or or pressing a button, so you've got a sequencer running. So the reason we chose the name of the Human League was precisely to articulate that intention. We wanted the word human in the in the title to counterbalance this perception of coldness and austerity. So, but but in that music, tunes are important. So, Very. yes. So was there a moment when you thought, oh, heck, I've got to write a tune here? Yes, there was. Uh, we did... I was in a band immediately before the Human League called The Future with a, a guy called Addy Newton, who went on to... A good friend of mine... Uh, went on to form Clock DVA. And um, his thing was avant-garde and Dada and, you know, kind of Pear Uber and all, all, yes. all the kind of yes. odd stuff, uh, which we loved. Uh, but he couldn't really sing and couldn't hold a tune. And so therefore the stuff that we were creating with him... Um, was more like... Uh, word-based, really, than tune-based. And it's only when we took our... Basically, we created a series of soundscapes, myself and Ian, Ian Craig Marsh, uh, which he kind of... We wrote some stuff over the top, and it wasn't really songs, it was more avant-garde than that. We took them down to record companies in London, and the majority of them loathed it and said, <laughs> get out of my office, more or less. 
But a couple of them, Virgin and Ireland, uh, gave us some encouragement. They said, look, you've definitely got something here, but what you need to do is go away and write some songs uh, with structure. <clears throat> and so we took that to heart. We sacked Addy, I'm afraid, because he couldn't hack it. And that's when we got Phil Oakian, and that's when we formed the Human League. Uh, and then, but, you know, writing songs for us wasn't really a problem because we were always fans of that oeuvre. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, my God, we're, we're too cool for school and we don't want to write pop songs because that's selling out. We love pop songs. We grew up with glam. We grew up with um, kind of proto-punk, you know, the Ramones and Suicide and, and uh, New York Dolls and... And and that kind of stuff. So when punk came along, we just thought it sounded like pub rock. Yeah, well, we it did, didn't it? <laughs> we, were, we were over it. Yeah. So we were punks for about two weeks when the, for the exciting bit. And then we decided, no, there's got to be something more than this. And it coincided with a, an, a, a two-page article, which actually I should try and seek out online, uh, by Brian Eno, who we worshipped, of course. Um, which was like a mani- almost like a manifesto for a new way of doing things. And the essence of it was rock and roll, uh, you know, guitar rock and roll is essentially dead. It won't go away, but it's like, as a creative force, it's, it's moribund. Um, and to encourage people to be like a kind of uh, future-facing version of, uh, of creativity, he encouraged people to buy a tape recorder, a microphone, and a synthesizer, or build your own, and said, that's all you need. And yes. we, we took him at his word. So we bought a, a tape recorder that could do sound, uh, sound on sound. Sound on sound, yes. <laughs> and that's how we created Being Boiled, our first record, which got us signed. Yes. I, because time's limited, I want to move you on to you being a music, a successful record producer. Mm-hmm. Now, when someone booked you to produce a record, because you can't read music and uh, you can't write it down, what was it that you brought to the studio that made you successful? Um, well, firstly, manuscripts is not an essential, or reading and writing manuscripts is not an essential part of record production anymore because of, well, now, because of digital audio workstations. But yeah. even back then, what was much more important is can you create uh, interesting rhythms electronically? Can you create... Do you have a good ear? Can you arrange things intuitively? And I could. Uh, I'd always been able to listen to a, a melody and reproduce it. And really, that's a key skill. Some people try and learn it. It's difficult if you don't have that aptitude. It's just inside me. I can do it. So I, when I hear, a, say, for instance, a, a demo of a song that somebody's written, maybe on a guitar or a piano, and they're just singing along, and then you meet the person, and you go, well, I've got some ideas, but I'd like, you know, I'd like your input as well. I can literally, in my mind's ear, imagine the end product how it might be arranged, deriving influences from different records that I like and different stuff that I've listened to in the past and maybe some contemporary stuff. And that really is like having manuscript 
running in your mind on, a, on, on, on an imaginary basis. Uh, the, fam the best example of this, uh, of this uh, reality, was when I worked with um, Green Garcite from Scritti Politi, who literally, um, uh, I did some singles with him, and, and he had some ideas in the studio for doing, creating, you know, 48-track arrangements of, of these amazing different synth parts and everything. And he started off with like a basic rhythm and some little blips and blops going blip, 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 blip. I'm going, what the fuck is this? And he'd already assembled in his mind the hocketing between the different parts. He knew what he wanted to do. He also cannot read or write music. He'd got a multi-stave manuscript running in his head on a timeline. So I now looking back realize i have that same capability you see um i'm a great fan of mavis staples me too yeah now yeah yes i know i mean she's just she walks on water as far as i'm concerned uh what could you bring to a legend like mavis well first of all you know <clears throat> the british electric foundation idea was to create electronic soul versions of famous songs with with maybe uh, uh, unusual combinations of of either you know musical style or singer versus song or some something so something that it, it always had to have an angle right with Mavis who I've always been an enormous fan of the staple singers and everything yeah with Mavis. Uh, when we did the second BEF album in 1992 or 91, um, I wanted to kind of focus mainly on the on the soul aspect of everything, uh, and then the, the electronic bit would would fall into place behind that. So I wanted to get some classic uh, soul singers involved. So I got Shaka Khan. I'm I'm amazed they agreed to do it. You just ask them if they, <laughs> yes. if they do it. You know. um, but Mavis, at that time, all what people have to remember is particularly for performers. I mean, Mavis is a songwriter as well. But um, with Tina, for instance, Tina Turner, she didn't write songs. She just performs whatever she decides to do or is given. So. Um, Oftentimes, like when I started working with Tina, she didn't have a record contract. When, May, when, when I was working with Mavis, I don't think she had a record contract at that point either. So all these people who you, we, me and you regard as complete yeah. bulletproof legends who should always be given a stipend to yeah. create stuff yeah. don't, ha don't have that luxury a lot of the time. They have big peaks and massive troughs in their career. So... The, the corollary of that is if you approach them at the right time, they're more than willing to do stuff for cash. You know, not necessarily a huge amount of cash either. Uh, because if they think you've got a creative soul that might bring something to the table and change their perception in the public eye, maybe get them another record contract, modernise their, their genre. Um, and so when... I did that the track with Mavis. I did "Song for You" by Donny Hath Hathaway, which is one of my favourite songs of all time. 
And I thought, we can do an electronic version of this. This is, you know, the, the core mission to prove that you can create something that's emotionally affecting using pure electronics. This was almost like the crystalline example of it for me. I'm so proud of it. Rightly so. Martin, in conclusion, you were always the young guy with the vision of the future, biting at the heels of the establishment. Right. Um, now you're just that little bit older. Are you, uh, are th two questions. Uh, do you still have that feeling that you have in your uh, uh, mind's eye things that are yet to do? And are you aware of the young whippersnappers coming up behind you? Oh, I keep an eye on that. I mean, I've been an educator now for a long time. I mean, the last five years I've been teaching MA, songwriting and production. So I get I get to work with a lot of uh, ta very talented young people, uh, a lot of whom are see, you know, trying to forge their way in a very difficult, in, uh, you know, kind of commercial environment in pop music nowadays, but they're still just as talented. And um, so I get to hear what's going on, you know, literally from the horse's mouth. Um, there's just as much, if not more talent out there. The problem is um, Spotify releases um, 100,000 tracks a day. Yeah. Not a week, not a month. A, a day. A day. A day. How are you going to get above that static? And the, the, so we're in this horrible situation where it doesn't matter how much time you have on your hands, you've got to rely on, on being recommended things. And unfortunately, there are some bad, bad faith actors out there who are creating Spotify playlists, buying their way onto it, even you know, using things like uh, click farms to create the impression that they're more... Yes they're more popular than they are. And so you end up with, with this insane situation where people like Radio 1 playlist people on the basis of the number of follows or clicks they have on Spotify, YouTube, etc. Now, that can, be, that can be rigged and is rigged by the big record companies. So I, I go back to my original point. There's some insanely great stuff out there, but finding it is getting more and more difficult. Yes. Finally, Martin, um, just a personal thing. Um, there is only one thing in your book that I'm really envious of. You've got a check for uh, rather more money than you probably ever thought of when you were a lad in Sheffield. What did you do with it? Uh, oh, God, it's like a, it's like a finer financial advisor question um i wasn't stupid i bought i i bought a very good value apartment in venice in italy uh with about 160,000 pounds worth of it and then i put the rest well I obviously had some spending money but i put a significant amount away uh into a pension which i'm now rinsed <laughs> <laughs> No, it was the Venice question, because when I first went to Venice, I could not believe it. And every time I go to Venice, I still can't believe it. Yeah, and, and yeah, 
and um i just love the fact that you've got this um openness this uh, openness to being moved by the city that inspired vivaldi it takes my breath away and it has the same effect on you absolutely have you ever been to his church yes yeah, and have you ever heard the four seasons performed there yes i have it's incredible isn't it it's, it's a absolutely. totally different experience because that piece of music was written for that acoustic yeah and that acoustic is one of the creamiest most beautiful lacking in early reflection reverbs in the world so I'll give you a great example. So when when they they play in winter, I think it is, it goes all those arpeggios, right, on the strings, in that church blend into this cloud of of of, of harmony, which is so. I I went oh my god I get it now, I get it. It's not meant to be about about the virtuosity of the player. It's meant to be about creating effects in space. I would love to talk to you about the effects in space of those German uh, synth bands, Edgar Froeser and whatever, that I listened to on headphones and got completely enraptured by dummy head recording. And yeah. that's <laughs> you too. It's, well, it's that's, my, that's my life, isn't it? I mean, I've been doing immersive three-dimensional sound with my company Illustrious since... Um, yeah, so much to talk about. You were talking about the immersive um, effect of surrounding yes. music. That... I mean, I'm involved in a lot of... Uh, I, 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 I've created, with my company, Illustrious, Illustrious Company, check it out, um, online, um, done lots of major um, public art events in the last 20 years with Vince Clark from Eurasia. And uh, I've now started doing a lot of Dolby Atmos mixing as well. Ah, this is music to my ears, Martin. Um, you can see I've got a quadraphonic mix of Emerson, Lake and Palmer's. Shut well, up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Have you ever considered digitising that? No, but I'll talk to you afterwards and do it. Uh, if you if you would, I'd love to hear it because I've got a rig that can play quadraphonic in my studio, so... Yes, I've got one as well. I have to finish. Congratulations on the book. Thoroughly loved it. Martin Ware, Electronically Yours, Volume 1. Uh, yeah. And thanks very much indeed for your time, Martin. It's very kind of you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Great question.